I'm going to read. I know I turned you guys to uh, Matthew 21. I'm going to read from Mark 11, and then we will uh, pray and jump in. So you guys don't have to go to Mark. You can just listen uh, to God's word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing in tying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom, coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning to allow us to gather and to worship and to celebrate and to sing and to be together and to open your word and to lift up our prayers. And God, over and over, you bless us and you take care of us and you give to us and you provide for us. God, we thank you for being intentional in our community. We thank you for being intentional in our world. God, I pray that you would help us to be quiet this morning. Help us to hear from you this morning. God, I pray that you would move in this place. Lord, we pray for the kids upstairs in Grace Place, that you would watch over them. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them at an early age, that they might walk with you for generations, that you might change the very fate of not only them, but their whole family line by saving them. God, we pray for the Grace Place volunteers, that you would give them extra energy, extra endurance, extra patience, Help them as they teach, as they sing, as they even just interact during craft time, that they would re be revealing the love you have for these kids to the children of Grace Place. God, we thank you for those who volunteer in that ministry and for their willingness to serve and love the kids that come into this church. God, help us here as we open your word to focus, to pay attention to what you have for us. You are the light and life of every soul and our only source of true hope. God, we ask that you would grant in us this time of opening your word that we would experience your transforming power, preparing us for what you have for us, not only today, but as we walk through Holy Week. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. Uh, in... 2008, a thousand years ago, there was a movie with Dennis Quaid called Vantage Point. Anybody see it? Yeah, like two people. All right. Yeah, this is going to land real well. Great. Uh, the movie, uh, like I said, stars Dennis, Dennis Quaid. He is a Secret Service agent protecting the president. The president is in Spain for some big conference. He's giving this big speech. There's an assassination attempt on the president's life while he's giving this speech. And so the movie opens, and you see um, everything play out, how that day kind of happened all the way up into uh, the attempt on the president's life, and then there's this biggest explosion. And then the screen kind of goes dark, 
and then the movie resets and you go back to the beginning of the day and you see the movie, you see all the same events from the viewpoint of a different person. First you see it from the viewpoint of Dennis Quaid's character and then you see it from a local police officer and then it goes back and you see it from a tourist that was there with his camcorder and then you see it from the president himself and then you see it from the group that's responsible and all along the way you're getting these bits and pieces and, and it keeps coming back to Dennis Quaid and he's trying to figure out who did it, what happened, and trying to fix what has been broken. I, I will be honest, uh, it, it drags a little, because you watch the same movie like 20 minutes, five times, right? So like it drags a little bit, but it is interesting that this one event has all these different viewpoints, these different vantage points to it. This morning, this is, this is Palm Sunday. We remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem for what would be the final days of his earthly life. This event is so important that it's one of a few that all four Gospels record. And when you read this event, when you read what happened on that Sunday, when you read this event, you find that there are all kinds of people, all kinds of vantage points accounted for. And so which one are you? How do you see Jesus here this morning? What we're going to do is we're going to look at all of the different accounts that we have of this triumphant entry. Now, I'm not going to read every passage the whole way through because otherwise, much like that movie, this sermon will drag a little bit and I'll lose you, right? So I'm going to give you some verses, but we are going to jump around. I'm going to give you some key verses I want you to look at. And as we do that, I want us to answer three questions. Do you know Jesus? Do you trust Jesus? And what's your motivation for worshiping him. So we're going to start in Matthew 21. And we're going to pick it up in verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus enters into the city, and he wants everybody to know. And he, everybody wants to know, Who is this? Everybody's questioning. The city is all stirred up. There is this big hoopla happening on the road, entering into the city, and people start asking, Who is this? People are shouting. They're laying their cloaks on the ground. They're cutting down branches. It's a parade. What's the deal? Who is this? What kind of person gets an entrance into the city like this? A king. A king gets an entrance into the city like this. It's quoted there in verse 5. I, I didn't read it, but it's uh, Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Hundreds of years before Jesus existed, there is a prophecy, prophecy saying, the king is coming. The Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will be riding on a donkey. 
This king, Zechariah says, will be upright and virtuous. He says he will be righteous, guiltless, blameless, faultless, sinless. That's what that word means. That's who this king is. And he has with him salvation, and he will bring deliverance from harm. This righteous king will bring with him deliverance for his people. Instead of the kings and pharaohs and politicians who dictate and dominate, this king will have humility. And he rides on a donkey. Now, it might seem a little strange, but this riding on a donkey is actually a very important royal symbolism. When a leader, when a king, when a general rode into a city on a donkey, it was a sign of peace. They weren't coming on a war horse. They weren't coming on some type of animal that could, was fast and could maneuver, right? It's a donkey. It's not getting anywhere quickly. So when a leader rides into town on a donkey, what he was saying was, I'm not coming for war. I'm not coming for a fight. Either it's, I have already conquered, I've already won the war, or I come in peace. I come to settle our differences. I'm coming to put an end to the fighting. This king that Zechariah talked about will come and speak peace to the people. We'll put an end to the fighting, and he will rule over the earth. This is a prophecy about Jesus and about the kind of king he would be. That's what Jesus is putting on display by riding this donkey into the city. And as he does so, we see in verse 8, it says, Cloaks, that people were laying down their cloaks on the road. They were cutting down branches and laying them so that the donkey could walk over him. This was an ancient version of rolling out the red carpet. They were lining the path for the donkey to walk along. And when they say that they're putting their, clo their cloaks down, their coats down, this was important. Most people only had one. You had two coats. If you saved up for a long, long time, you saved up and you had maybe two cloaks. You had it with you at all times. It was your blanket when you were stuck outside. It was your pillow. It was your protection from the elements. It was everything. It was an act of honoring the royal guest. It was putting your most important possession into the service of royalty. They were treating Jesus as king. In verses 9 and 10, the crowds are calling out, Hosanna! As we heard this morning, as Daniel read from Psalm 118, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This word, Hosanna, pray, save us. In the Old Testament, it was, God, save us. God, remove this oppression. Save us from slavery. Save us from being in exile. Save us from whatever nation was tormenting them. God, save us. God, send that king, send that Messiah to save us. But over time, it took on a broader meaning. It became not just save us. It was, became a shout of joy and excitement and exaltation. It was a shout of expectancy that God would one day save them as time went on and God over and over again showed the people, I haven't forgotten about you. I am with you. I am for you. Just hold on a little bit longer. Hosanna took on another meaning. Hosanna wasn't just God save us in this moment, but God, we know you're going to save us. It was still a call for God to save them, but over time it was a comforting call. It was that of a reassurance that help is on the way. Pastor John Piper says it is the bubbling over of a heart that sees hope and joy and salvation on the way and can't keep it in. As Jesus rides on this donkey, the people were calling out a request that came from generation upon generation of longing. They called out, Hosanna, save us. They called out, Hosanna, our salvation is here. Blessed is he. Blessed is the kingdom. 
Jesus knew exactly what he was doing by riding on this donkey. With this action, he is saying, yeah, I am that king. That king that Zechariah talked about all those hundreds of years ago, I am that king who brings salvation. Gone are the days. So much of Jesus' ministry was him doing a miracle and then telling the person who received it, don't say anything to anybody. Keep this to yourself. Keep this under wraps. Yes, you might understand who I am, but in this moment, I need you to keep that on lock. But gone are those days. We're a few days away from Good Friday. We're just a few days away from the cross. There is no more secrecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. He is the one who is going to make things right. He is our salvation. Do you know him? Do you actually know him? Now, for some of you, you might hear that question and think that's a silly question for you to ask me on a Sunday morning when I'm in church. But just because you're in church doesn't mean you know Christ any more than just because I'm in a restaurant, it doesn't make me a chef. Verse 11, the people are calling, calling out, and the people in the city, the crowd say, the people are asking, who is this? And verse 11, the crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The people respond and describe him as a prophet. Eh, wrong. Yes, he is a prophet in a sense that he speaks the word of God as a prophet would, but he is so much more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh. He didn't just speak the word of God. He is the word of God. He is perfection. He is salvation. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is the fullness of God, the exact nature and imprint of when you see Christ, you see God. It is God in the flesh. God in the flesh is walking in the creation that he made and the creation that he upholds. There are those who think they know him or they think that they are in right standing with him because they're nice, because they're generous, because they vote a certain way, because they show up to church consistently, because they raise their kids a certain way, because they live with certain morals but they never actually allow themselves to know Jesus on an experiential level to allow him to lead and rule and shape their lives. They've never actually submitted and given their own perceived authority to him. Instead, of, instead they want to keep him at a distance. They try to form and shape Jesus in their own image, trying to pick and choose the areas of their lives and the times in which they want him to be their king and the times they want to be their own king. It doesn't work that way. Do you actually know him? Or do you just have a lot of knowledge about him? Do you know a bunch of facts and figures? Or do you know him on an experiential level? Do you have a relationship with him? If you want a relationship with him, much like if you want a relationship with anyone else, you, want to, you need to engage with him. Open your Bible. Read. Shut out the distractions. Spend time in prayer. Enter the conversation. Engage with him. We study the Bible because, yes, we want to learn information, facts, and figures. But so much more than that, we want to let the living and active word of God change us and call us to respond. Intellectual knowledge is good, but you have intellectual knowledge and you have experiential knowledge. It's not just, I know God is gracious in theory, but... I know God gives grace because I've felt it, I've experienced it, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good for myself. 
God wants us to get past the intellectual into the experiential. That's not to say intellectual is bad. Study, learn, ask questions, because God is accessible. Yes, we should learn information about him. Yes, we should memorize scripture. Yes, we should engage with his word. That's good and helpful. But if all you are doing is collecting spiritual trivia answers, you don't actually know him. To know him is to have a relationship with him, to be transformed, changed, and affected by him. Give time to being with God in prayer. Just talk to him. Share your victories. Share your defeats. Share your highs and your lows, your wants and your needs, the desires you have for yourself and for others. You might say, but doesn't he already know that stuff? Prayer seems silly. God knows everything, so why do I have to pray? It's not that you have to, it's that you get to. Yes, he hears, yes, he knows everything, but he wants to hear it. He likes to hear it. I don't like it when something goes wrong with my kids. If they are hurt or scared or something breaks, I don't like it. But I do like when they ask for help. I do like knowing that they know that if something is wrong in their world, they can call for mom or dad, and we're going to do everything we can to fix it. I don't always like in the moment when I'm trying to put my son down for bed and it's that moment he decides he wants to tell me a 10-minute story about a cool thing he saw driving to school three months ago. But I like that he does want, to know, want me to know it, that he said this is important to me and I want my dad to know it. God has given us prayer as a gift he invites us into the conversation, and he says, look, I'm here, I'm listening, I'm invested, I care about what you have to say. Don't minimize or trivialize that huge blessing and gift from God that prayer is for you. He wants you to know him and invites you into that reality. Engaging with God, having this relationship with him might start with information, but if you actually know Jesus, there is life change that happens. Your heart, your wants, your desires, your mind, these things will be changed and transformed when you have a real relationship with Christ. Do you know him? Have you been changed and transformed? Have you experienced the new life being offered to you through the gospels, through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Do you know him? The next question I want us to ask this morning is, do you trust him? Take your Bibles, and you're going to go to John 12. If you've got the seatback Bibles, you're looking for page 898. You're going to John 12. So we're in Matthew. You're going to go to your right, Mark. Skip over him. Skip over Luke. We'll come back to him, and you're going to John 12. I told you we're jumping around today. I'll give you a minute. Let me know when you get there. Just say, yeah, I'm here. You're getting there. Okay. John, John 12, picking up in verse 14. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming and sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and, he had done, and, and what, had been, what had been done to him. In these final days of Jesus' life, if anyone was going to understand Jesus, if anyone was going to understand his ministry, understand the plan, understand what was coming next, it's got to be the disciples, right? 
I mean, they're with him for three years. They see the miracles. They hear the teaching. And not only did they experience everything that we've read in the Gospels, but they got all that time that's not recorded. They got all that personal small group and, even, and at times one-on-one time with Jesus. If anyone was going to understand him and what was coming next, it's got to be them, right? Verse 16, they didn't get it. It wasn't until he died and rose again that all the pieces fell into place, right? They're spending time after the resurrection. They're in this locked room, scared about what's coming next. They had seen their Messiah. They had seen the one who they believed was the one that God had sent. They watched him die on a cross, and they head for the hills, and they're locked in this upper room, scared that what happened to Jesus is coming for them. And then Jesus shows up in that locked room with a scar still on his hands and feet, And they start to process these things. And as they're speaking to the resurrected Jesus, it starts to click. Zechariah, donkey, king, I get it. I get get what you're doing. Now I see. But in the moment, they didn't understand. Which is nothing new for the disciples, right? In Luke 9, Jesus was telling them about what was coming, telling them how the Son of Man was going to be given up, how he was the servant of all, how he was going to be killed for the sake of all people. And right after Jesus is talking about how he is going to serve all of humanity and they are to follow in his lead, to be servants, the disciples find themselves getting into an argument about who's the best. Jesus says, we want you to, I'm going to serve all of humanity, I want you to be a servant. And the disciples to start to say, I think I'm better than everybody else in this circle. They just didn't get it. And man, if they couldn't pick that up, things were only going to get more confusing from them. In just a few days, Jesus would be leading the Passover meal. Right? It's this meal and this celebration that dates back generations like we talked about this morning. It was a remembrance of how God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt, sending the plagues, culminating with the death of the firstborn, and it was this reminder for us. The Passover meal was made up of all of these different items that are all symbolic reminders of the events and of God's character. Over time, this meal uh, developed a script of sorts where every year it was the same thing. The same words got said at the same time during the meal. The same prayers got prayed. You grew up and you had this meal every year. And so as you got older, you knew the script. You knew what words, what prayers, what was coming next. You knew everything about this meal because it was so important to your life. Jesus is with his 12, with his disciples. Jesus is leading this meal. And he decides to go off script. He takes up the cup of wine and he begins to talk about this wine as blood. His blood being poured out for the sins of all people. And then he takes the bread and he prays for it and he talks about this is his body being broken for them. Jesus was teaching them one final time about what was coming. And again, it just flew over their heads. A few hours after that, soldiers will come to arrest Jesus, and he doesn't fight back. And in fact, he tells his disciples, stand down. Peter, who gave you a sword? Put it down. He doesn't fight. He doesn't argue. He allows himself to be taken captive. And how do they respond? They run and make themselves scarce. I'm sure we can all identify with the disciples. We get in the midst of a situation and it's confusing and we don't understand what God is doing and our natural reaction is to run, is to give up, is to get angry, to get frustrated, 
and to become bitter. We looked at Psalm 13 last week and talked about how, you know, it's okay to question. It's okay to worry. It's okay to say to God, as David says in Psalm 13, 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? God, I don't understand where you are. You feel distant. You feel hidden. God, where are you? What are you doing? But we talked about how we don't want to stay in that state forever. We got to move past that. And we move based on who we know God is and what we've experienced of God's goodness. We might not be able to see through the fog. We might not be able to understand what God is doing in this moment or in this instance. But still we can say, I trust you, God. Which brings us back to the first question, right? Do you know him? Do you actually know him? Because if you know him, then you can rest in the chaos. You can trust in the chaos and you can know that he has you. And that he is working all things out for your good and his glory. It's why we don't have to get angry that we are not omniscient, that we are not all-knowing, but we can be thankful that we have a God who is. The disciples couldn't understand until it was time for them to understand. We might not get to understand everything that happens in this life right away. We might not get to understand till years later. And truth be told, sometimes I think there are things in our lives that we experience and go through that we're not going to get to understand until we meet Jesus in heaven. And even then, I don't think we're going to worry all that much about those dark, hard times that we didn't understand because we're going to be in the presence of God and his glory is going to make all of the hard stuff this distant, fuzzy sort of memory. If you don't get all the details now, if you don't get all the clarity you want now, can you still trust God? If you truly know him on an experiential level, then the answer should be yes. That doesn't mean you are impervious to fear or questions, but ultimately it means you can let your head hit the pillow at night knowing God is in control of all things at all times, and you can rest in that truth. You can trust that, as Paul says in Romans 8, as we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Can you trust God? Do you trust God? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Finally, our third question this morning, what's your motivation? I want you to go to Luke 19. This is the last time I make you jump, I promise. You're going to go back, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So you're going to go back to your left. You're looking for, if you've got the CPAC Bibles, you're looking for page 878. Luke 19. Shout out, let me know when you're there. I got a woo. A woo, a yup, a couple of murmurs. All right. Luke 19, skip down to verse 37. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All the people were there, and they're celebrating for the mighty works that they had seen. They saw Jesus for what he had done and possibly what, they could, what he could do for them. How much of them 
really understood what was going on. These throngs of people, this crowd, this parade of people, how many of them truly understood? If the disciples didn't get it, how many of this crowd actually understood? They called him king, and they shouted songs of peace. But I don't think they fully grasped the kind of king and the kind of peace Jesus was actually bringing. They praised him because they heard he could raise people from the dead. He had just raised Lazarus a few weeks, a few days beforehand. They heard that he could raise people from the dead. But I don't think they understood that he is the Messiah, the one who would ultimately conquer death with that of his own on a cross. They praised him because he could heal the blind and make the paralyzed walk, not fully understanding Jesus is the very source of life. They praised him because they heard he had fed 5,000 with a couple of loaves and some fish, not knowing he is the bread of life, that if you take of him, you will never go hungry again. It's good and great to worship God in response to the ways he provides for us. Amen. The glory of God, the blessings of God, both the intentional ones he gives and the, the general ones that we have as just part of life. That's why when Jesus says, even if these people stop singing, the glory of God is revealed, is, would be sung out by the very creation that I have made. It's good to celebrate him. We should celebrate with gratitude and joy for the many ways he cares for us and provides for us. But be careful not to fall into the trap of worshiping the gifts rather than the giver of those gifts. What's your motivation for worship? Because if your motivation is based on, I worship God and he gives me things. Your motivation becomes manipulation, and that's not a relationship. It reveals you don't actually know him, and it reveals you don't actually trust him. Because if your worship is contingent and connected to what God will do for you, what happens when God says no? What happens when God says not right now? What happens when you don't get what you want or the hard, scary, strenuous times of life come? Like the man who built his house on the sand, you'd be swept away. Is that how you see Jesus? The things he did, the things God still does, are good and awesome. But the things Christ did, the things that we read about in the Gospels, the miracles and works and signs and wonders, they weren't the point of his ministry. They weren't the point of his time here. Christ's earthly ministry, it gives us this small taste, this little bit of a glimpse into what it will be like when he comes back again to make all things right. What it will be like when the kingdom of God is fully and completely established, reigning and ruling, when there will be no more sin. As John writes in Revelation 21.4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. These miracles, these things, these healings, these things Jesus did, they were a glimpse into what it will be like. There will be no more paralyzed. There will be no more blind. There will be no more hunger and thirst. These things God will take care of. The point was not these miracles. The point of Jesus' time on earth is the cross. The end goal, the big idea, the main objective is to get to Jerusalem and become our sin offering and our replacement so that we can inherit life with him and get to fully experience the presence of God forever and ever. Amen. Don't get caught up in what Jesus can do for you to the detriment of being changed by what he has already done for you by dying on the cross and rising again. Do you know him? Do you trust him? 
And what's your motivation for having a relationship with him? There's one last vantage point I want us to look at this morning, and that's of the guy on the donkey. As the people sing and shout and put down their cloaks and cut down branches, what's Jesus up to? How is Jesus responding to all this? Skip down to verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the crown, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Think about the juxtaposition here. You have this crowd. You got the disciples and you got crowd. In my head, it's hundreds of people filling this little dirt road. And they're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They're, they're quoting scripture, scripture they had been taught by their family for generations, for, for years since they were little, little, little ones. They had memorized, they had heard these psalms, and they had known about this promise of the Messiah. And they're singing, and everybody's getting caught up in the joy and the festivity. And people are in the town are saying, who's coming? What is this? What kind of royalty? What kind of important person is coming? In the midst of all of that, right in the center is Jesus on this donkey, taking its slow time and he is weeping. And it's not he got a little misty-eyed. It's not one or two little tears. That word is wailing, sobbing. He weeps not because of what was coming for him. He's not weeping over the pain of what the cross was going to be like, what, what the beatings he was going to take. He's not weeping about that. He is weeping when he considers the people. He weeps and he speaks about Jerusalem. I wish you knew. I wish you understood this peace you're shouting for, this peace you're clamoring for. I wish you knew how it was going to be given to you. I wish you understood who I was. I wish you understood what I've come to do. I wish you weren't looking for a military leader. I wish you weren't looking for power and prestige. I wish you would see past the signs and wonders. I wish you understood what's right in front of you right now. But because you, and when he says you, he's talking about Jerusalem, he's talking about God's people. He says, because you missed it, because you didn't understand, and more than that, you flat out rejected me, God's city is going to crumble. He's talking about the days where God's city, Jerusalem, will be overtaken and wiped out. Jesus weeps because of the brokenness of this world. That's why when he did, when he went to Lazarus' grave, right, the story is, Lazarus' sisters come to Jesus and say, Jesus, our brother is sick. He's dying. If you will come, you can bring him back. From, you, can, you can heal him. You can restore him to life. And Jesus waits extra days. Lazarus dies. And he shows up and his sisters say, where were you? Why weren't you here? If you would have showed up on time, you could have fixed this. And he says, I got this. Trust me. And he has them roll away the stone in front of the grave, and he calls out to Lazarus. But before he does that, what does it say? The verse that everybody's got memorized. Jesus wept. He stood in front of his friend's tomb, and he wept. Why? He knew in two minutes he was about to have Lazarus come back out alive. But he wept because his friend had to experience death. His friend tasted this thing that wasn't meant for us, the consequences of sin. 
the reality that we are born as sin as sinners with rebellion in us by nature, rebels and enemies of God who need a Savior to make things right. Jesus weeps not because of what the pain of the cross, but the fact that the cross has to happen anyway. All along these walls are stories and lists and reminders that we live in a broken, fallen world. We live at a time, we live with sin, and we have to experience it on a daily basis. There are tangible reminders of the brokenness of this world, the ways in which we have to deal with loss and pain and hurt and grief and injury and destruction. They remind us that this is not the way that things are meant to be. This world is not the way it was intended to be, and the brokenness of it breaks God's heart. Again, I want to encourage you, if you have time today, grab a piece of paper when we're done and add to the list. Jesus weeps here on this donkey because there are people who don't know him. There are people who think they know him, but have placed their faith actually in themselves. Placed their faith in their own actions. Placed their faith in the things that they think can save him, but are actually failing and faltering. He weeps because we forget that he is in control of all things at all times. And when we get scared, we run away and hide and we do the total opposite of what he calls us to do. When he says, just come to me, come to me and I got you. I will care for you. I will, I will care for you. I will carry you if I have to. I'm going to be with you. Just come. He weeps because our motivations get twisted. We begin to worship the gifts instead of the giver. Our view of him becomes that of what can he do for us? When it's all about the tangible blessings, we forget the greatest blessing that he has given us, the gift of himself going to the cross, becoming our sin sacrifice, choosing to die for our sins on our behalf and raising from the dead. It's the greatest gift, the greatest blessing, and it matters now. Here it is life-changing and continues on throughout eternity. And yet there are those who will still not believe who will choose to ignore, who choose to, don't, to ignore him, who don't know him, who don't trust him, and whose only motivation to engage with God is based on what can God do for me. We've entered into Holy Week. Good Friday, the next time we gather here in this room, Friday at 6.30. We're going to remember and reflect on this blessing, this gift he has given us. We're going to remember this ugly, painful death that we call good because he died on the cross for us. He saved us from our sins. This Holy Week is a good time to ask these questions and to reflect on these questions and maybe try and come up with some answers. Do you know him? Do you really actually know him? Have you experienced the life-changing power and authority of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you experienced that life change? Do you trust him? When it's hard and uncomfortable and messy, do you trust that God is good and he's at work for your good and his glory? What's your motivation for being in a relationship with him? Why are you here? Why are you here this morning? Why do you engage with him? Why do you call yourself a Christian? Is it in response to the gospel or because you think you can get something from him? What's your vantage point of Jesus? How do you see him? Because your view, your decision of who Christ is, is the most important decision you can make. And I pray that this week, this year, right now, this morning, you choose and Understand who he is, the king who comes in bringing salvation and peace for you, offering it as a gift through his death and resurrection.
Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and this chance to open your word. We thank you for this reminder, this yearly time when we get to this week and we hopefully have some, make some time to slow down and to remember. Remember what you did for us by sending your son to die for us. Remember that Jesus made it clear from the beginning what he came to do. This was a plan that you put in motion as soon as sin entered the world, before sin entered the world. You knew how this was going to play out. You told Satan way back in Genesis 3 what was going to come. You told him that, yeah, you're going to hurt that one, that Messiah's heel. And the cross hurt. The rejection, the pain, the abuse. But ultimately it led to that tomb being empty. Christ being risen, never to die again. And ultimately, eventually Satan's head being crushed. God, help us to use this week, use this today to truly examine where we stand with you. To truly embrace whether or not we actually really know you. Is it, is it lip service? Is it routine? Or, or do we actually know that you've changed us? Have we actually, can, can we see the fruit? God, I pray that you would help us to answer these questions honestly. Answer these questions honestly within ourselves and with you because you already know the answers. God, help us to help us to know you, to know you deeper, to never be satisfied with how much we know of you because there's still more of you to be known. God, help us to trust you. Life gets so overwhelming, so exhausting. It can be so easy to get distracted and forget how good you are. Help us to trust you in those moments. As the song says, give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Help us to have our relationship with you, not based on what you may or may not do for us, but just because you're good. And you proved it by sending your son to die for us. God, as we go into the world this week, as we leave here even today to go to be with family and friends, as we go to work and school and do all these things, Lord, help us. You have made us to be the lights of the world. Help us to shine brightly. We thank you and praise you. And we pray all these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.